I'm Hal Stewart, BFBS presenter and massive football fan. I've been getting footballers to talk to the troops via some online events where members of the British Armed Forces and their families have been sending in their questions. First up, former England captain and now Match of the Day host Gary Lineker. Before we start, though, I'd like to point out that this conversation was recorded before the death of Diego Maradona. Here's a taste of what we have coming up. It's funny, when I came back from Barcelona, I quite found that, I shouldn't really say this, I've said it before, probably, <laughs> I quite fancied going to Arsenal, but they, they wouldn't pay. You pretty much had to commit um, actual bodily harm to get a yellow card. I just wrote the tweet saying, oh, if Leicester win the league, I'll do the first match of the day next season in just my unders. Gary Stevens, the right back, comes over and he looks down at me and he goes, oh, sorry, you all right, you all right? And, and, and you can see it if you look at the footage. I'm, I'm just looking at the I'll shit myself. Once upon a time, on the pitch. It is a man who proudly captained his country 18 times, scored 48 goals in 80 internationals, a World Cup golden boot winner who is seen in millions of homes each Saturday night as host of Match of the Day and a promoter of crisps. It is, of course, Gary Lineker, OBE. Gary, welcome. Good evening. I was thinking about this earlier in the day and, and people were saying to me, oh, are you nervous about speaking to, to Gary Lineker? And I was wondering, well, do you get nervous? Do you get nervous maybe more before doing stuff for the media than you did when you were playing football? Um, only when I'm talking to you, really. But, um, <laughs> no, not re I don't get nervous. I, I don't have that kind of gene. Even when I played, even when I took penalty in the penalty shootout and um, semi-finals, I quite like it. I quite like those things. And it's the same with TV. It's, 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 um, it's a bit of a buzz. I don't really suffer too much um, from nerves, which is, I think, I think it's a key asset, actually, to be a, certainly a striker and probably on television as well. But I think you, you've got to have a kind of coldness, if you like, um, in, when the moment is so important. So you've got to keep your calm. I've done well by it in life, really, because I've, I'm kind of very stable temperament. I haven't got a temper and I, haven't, mm. and I don't suffer from nerves. Well, it's right that you mentioned you haven't got a temper. I mean, you had a famous record when it came to bookings. You were never given a yellow or a red card. When you think back on certain moments in your playing career, do you ever think, well, that would have been a book in these days? Um, well, I never tackled anyone, so that's probably why I didn't get a book out of this time. On. Um, of course. I mean, it's a different game now, isn't it? Mm, when I completely. played, you, you pretty much had to commit um, actual bodily harm to get a yellow card, or certainly a red. Um, but there were a lot around it. I, I just, of course I would get booked now. You know, I'd get booked for, you know, being in possession of rather large ears or something. Um, <laughs> it's, it's become, you, you get booked for anything these days. That record's probably safe. I can't imagine anyone could possibly go through a career now. Who was the best player you ever came up against? Um, well, that's easy. Um, Diego Maradona. Hmm. So head and shoulders above anyone else, even though actually, in reality, he was head and shoulders below everyone else. But, um, well, he was head he and was shoulders so above tiny. Shilton uh, with his arm yeah, well, stretched. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I don't think Peter expected him to punch it because it's not the sort of thing you'd see in our game. But I, I never thought I'd see a better player than him in my lifetime. But I, I think Messi, probably given his given the length of his career, probably might edge it. But they're, they're very similar. It was a harder time to play in the 80s mm. than it is now because you could kick people and they used to kick Diego. Pitches were awful. One little story, I actually played with him for half a game for the rest of the world against the English League 11. I was playing for the rest of the world because I was in Barcelona at the time. There was like Platini, Zico, 
Kareka, all sorts of brilliant players playing. And, but we were all in awe of Diego. And he was sat there in the dressing room and he just, you know, like you roll a pair of socks up, two socks into one. He just sat there juggling it for about five minutes, <laughs> um, sat down on the bench. Went, and then he went out on the pitch and he did this thing that it probably doesn't sound ridiculously brilliant, but I've never known anyone else that could do it. So he juggled the ball all the way out to the centre circle in the warm-up. And then he got it and he booted it as high as he could in the sky. And the thing came right down to his foot and he did it again. He booted it up as, you mean, as high as you could possibly kick it. And each time it came down, the most he had to do was perhaps walk five or six paces to kick the next one. I remember going back to train the next day in Barcelona and we'd turn the players and we all tried it. And the best anyone did was three and they were running for the third. Gosh. And he did about 12. And then on the 12th one, he just caught it dead on his foot. <laughs> and you could see people like Platini and just going, oh my God. Yeah. Um, he, was, he was so good, so good. Obviously, there's another side to him that we saw with the Hand of God goal, but, you know, that's, that's the nature of the beast. He's, he's got his dark side, but... Well, it was that game, Gary, which he sort of exemplified everything that Diego is. He scored that cheating goal, and then he scored arguably the greatest goal ever seen yeah. at a World Cup. Yeah, it kind of encapsulates his, his life in many ways, doesn't it? You know, a bit of good, a bit of bad, a bit of, you know cheeky behaviour on, on occasions. Um, I, I like Diego. I, 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 some of my teammates have never forgiven him for that. I've I never really forgiven the linesman because I know, and he actually admitted it in later years, that he did think he saw a hand. Oh. Um, I think he just bottled it. Don't um, tell me that. just made it worse. It just made it worse. So much but worse. Diego himself, it was impish. It was naughty. He got away with it. Um, would I have ever tried to do that? No. Um, because it's not in our mindset. But, you know, we've seen great players. Look, Thierry Henry against Ireland, of course, in the famous qualifier. But I've met Diego a few times. I've done a couple of documentaries with him, and he's, he's larger than life. But I like him. Chris, joining from southeast London. This is a, a quite a long question. I'll read the whole thing to you. What was your development through the youth ranks to the first team of football really like? And compared to your experience, do you think that the young players coming through now are not putting in the same amount of effort and are maybe, because of the money, going to be treated slightly differently. And he's used Mason Greenwood and Phil Foden as examples. Um, well, it is difficult to, to, to massively generalise, but I would say now the young kids are much more professional, have a better attitude than they did in my day. I mean, our day, we all know we grew up in a, in a, in a bit of a drink culture in this particular country. After training, you often go to the pub and say, so it's changed now. Diet's important. You see all the players now, they're in incredible shape. You've got to remember young footballers are very, very young men. They'll make mistakes. You know, we saw with Greenwood and you mentioned Foden. But, but by and large, they, and those two kids, are, they're going to be great players. They're going to, they'll learn from that. It's so competitive football that you, you can't afford to mess around with, with your career. You can't afford not to be professional. I don't think, I think some things that were in my day that are no longer around, like I, all apprentices used to be apprenticeship in the, when I first joined and um, you know we had to I had to clean the dressing room that was my job daily other players would do um, clean the boots etc and this and you know I had to clean the dressing room clean the toilets I had to get all the players kit and in those days nowadays they have different kit every day but in those days you only had one set of training kit so it was fine and we had to have these on these racks and used to hang all the all their clothes up after training all their, their track suits their shorts their pants and hang them up. Now, you can imagine Thursday, Friday, these things were practically walking on themselves. I mean, it was rancid. Um, so, you know, we had to do horrible jobs like that. They don't any longer do. But I think it made you appreciate, you know, what a real job would be like. And it just drove you on to do footballs more. But 
we've got some fantastic kids coming through oh, yeah. in this country at the moment. Really exciting bunch, and I think we're going to be successful. Um, you never know in these competitions, but um, and it's a bit early yet. But looking ahead, maybe Qatar and certainly the two tournaments after that, I think will be very competitive. Yeah, when have England ever had this many uh, spoilt for choice right backs? It seems <laughs> quite yeah, incredible. If international football was just about right backs, we'd, we'd walk it. But we really would. Know, uh, it's, it's great, but we've got great forwards as well. You know, you just you look at, you know, obviously Sterling, you've got Sancho, you've got Harry Kane, you've got Rashford, we've got Foden who can play the midfield or, or in one of those high positions. Um, loads of brilliant young forwards um, coming through and I, every time I do it I always miss out one or two but um, we're going to mm. be good You mentioned there sort of cleaning the boots and, and, and doing all that stuff in the dressing room and that kind of made me think that's a you know, proper job as you mentioned there a bit like being in the armed forces where there's, there's quite a lot of those proper that jobs is a real job. <laughs> Well this is what I want to ask you why are you such a supporter for example doing something like this giving up your time tonight when there is football on uh, why are you such a big supporter of the armed forces? Um, well, I think we all are, aren't we? Um, I think we all appreciate the extraordinary job that you all do. Measurably thankful for it. Uh, you know, you, you put your lives on the line um, for our nation. We're patriotic, I'm patriotic. You know, I played for my country, but that's, that's different to putting your line, life on the line for your country. So I just think it's a massive respect towards them. I've, I've visited, um, I went to um, Split during the Balkans crisis, and I, I, I went out to Afghanistan and visited the troops there. I went with Freddie Flintoff, actually, and then and we had spent an amazing couple of days with the troops, and, and there was, was one bit, we were in the, um, the food hall, whatever you call it. We were eating, suddenly the sirens went, there was like some kind of, bomb scare thing or whatever it was and, and lots of people died me and Freddie Flintoff I remember huddling under a table and, and some guys were just sat there just carrying eating their food because <laughs> we were told to get under the table if that siren went but um, yeah we were a bit pathetic and um, <laughs> by comparison of course we are you know hugely thankful and it's it's been great for me to have had the experience to, to visit the troops um, in just before they're going out to action etc yeah I mean, as a father of four boys, how would you feel if any one of them had shown an interest and wanted to join the armed forces? I, I think it's highly unlikely they've got their father's cowardly genes. <laughs> anyone. Um, but of course, I would have been, you know, encouraged them. Us all parents would be massively proud of, of their son if they're in the armed forces, albeit with it, I'm sure, comes a lot of concern and worry. The dangers are obvious. For, for any parent, I've, I've not lived through it. My boys are well in the 20s now, so that's not going to happen. But I would imagine it's a real mixture of, uh, of emotions. Now, uh, another question saying, uh, hi, Gary, this is from uh, Scott Hamilton. As an Arsenal fan, we would like to know what's your most memorable moment against the Gunners and why? Well, probably playing for Tottenham. Uh, I, I would say probably um, the FA Cup semi-final. Um, I'm surprised an Arsenal fan has asked me, to, asked me for that. <laughs> asked me that question. But, Glutton for punishment. Um, yeah, it was it was that game. Arsenal had already won the league. We played them all pretty much, and we played them in the semi-final in '91. Nobody gave us much of a chance. Um, Terry Venables pulled out a masterstroke tactical plan. Gazzas obviously scored that unbelievable free kick, and I'm actually the bloke who scored the other two goals that no one remembers in that game. It was just an incredible day um, for us because we hadn't had and still don't get that much success compared with what Arsenal have had. So it was a brilliant day. And the key was that we actually went on to win the thing because that would have been a complete waste. You beat Arsenal as the first ever Wembley semi-final and then to lose in the final would have been awful. But yeah, I would definitely say that. Although lots of, lots of good games against Arsenal. My first time I ever played against Arsenal was at Highbury for Leicester. I put us 2-0 up actually. I scored both goals and the second one, 
Pat Jennings was in goal. It was obviously was one of the great goalkeepers. Shows how old I am. <laughs> and um, I had a one-on-one with him. And as I'm coming through, I'm coming in slightly from the left. And I've looked up and I thought, Christ, he's massively out of position. He's given me the whole goal to shoot at. And I thought, right, okay. So I just went to slot it. And just as I hit it, he already started diving that way. He'd absolutely conned me into shooting exactly. I've never seen a keeper before or after do that. And I got lucky because he got a hand to it, but it just bobbled and hit the inside of the post and went in. Um, but then Tony Woodcock scored two goals in the last five minutes, I think. He certainly scored one in the last minute, but yeah, my memory's not, not brilliant. That's but, pretty um, good. That was a good day. Always remember the good times. Uh, yeah. Matthew has said, uh, evening, Gary. Can you give a big shout out to everyone in 2-6 Engineer Regiment in Tidworth? Uh, hello, um, everyone in 2-6 Regiment in Tidworth. Was that can close? You, Was that wrong? It's close enough. Uh, <laughs> can you check out 65 Roses on Instagram? Fantastic clothing with all the money going towards Cystic Fibrosis Charity. So that's uh, I can't do it now because that means I go off the phone and then don't. I lose my Zoom because I'm technically... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't do it now. Uh, also, uh, Gary to Gary. This is Gary Russell from Leading Hand Gary Russell from HMS Lancaster, currently at home in Aylesbury, which isn't a million miles away from me. Oh. He said, uh, during Italia 90, what was going through your mind? when you gestured to the bench after Gaza had been booked, that kind of have a word with him? Yeah, I, I, I think it was, a, it was a mixture, really. Is that The first thought, we all knew that what it meant. We all knew that if we got to the final, we wouldn't be able to play immediately. And then it happened, and it happened really near the bench. Mm. It was on that side of the pitch, and I was really close. And obviously, it's hard to remember exactly everything you were thinking, but there's no question. It's like, oh, no, Gaza, no, not a yellow card. And then, then I started worrying for him and I thought, is he going to be all right? And then I looked at him and I could see his bottom lip going a little bit and there's a bit of a tear in his eye and I thought, oh, Christ. But whilst I was worried for him, I was also worried for the team because we were level at that point and there's a lot, we're in extra time. Just looked over the bench really and I just, you know, I said, have a word with him. So basically keep an eye on him um, because I was worried that he, he was he's mentally gone. Um, but actually rallied and played great in extra time anyway. I had no idea that it was what I did until I saw it after and people started saying that iconic moment. I was, obviously, you did, I didn't know what I did. I didn't know it was picked up, um, but it became that big thing. But I was sadly gutted for him at the time. But in the end, we were all gutted anyway because we obviously lost on the pen. I think a nation fell in love with both of you then because, uh, you know, the nation fell in love with Gaza because he, yeah. it showed how much he cared, but also it showed that you cared about a teammate as well. And I think that... Well, I cared about a teammate. To be, to be honest, I was more worried about the result because I thought, <laughs> if he got, you need to get a grip, otherwise we're not going to go out here. So I don't want to, you know, yeah. tell him I was virtuous in that, in that way. Take it. It's how I felt at the time. And I yeah, can share I think that with you now. Uh, Vicky Miller says, hi, Gary, hope you're well. Uh, the best team you played for and the best manager as well. Yeah, the, well, we'll go club side. Uh, the best club side I played with um, was Everton, unquestionably. They were, I was only there one season before I went to Barcelona. Barcelona, when I was there, were kind of in transition. It, wasn't, it was a decent side, but not a great side. Everton was a really good side. It, obviously, in the mid-80s, they were kind of vying for the league times with Liverpool. They were quite dominant a lot of um, the seasons. And, and it was just such a great Side, you know, like Sheedy and Trevor Stephen and Bracewell and Reed. And I played up front with Sharpie and Kevin Ratcliffe and Neville Southall and Gary Stevens. You can name the team now, and they were easily the best club side I played for. I mean, obviously, I loved playing for Leicester, I loved playing for all the teams, and Leicester's my team. But in terms of the best side I played, it's yeah. unquestionably Everton. How's your Spanish these days? Because you played, as you mentioned, for Barcelona. You still speak it? Yeah, uh, it's very frustrating because I don't get the chance to practice anymore. Um, even when, when I played for Barcelona in 86 to 89, um, I went to school there while I was there three times a week. 
um, to learn Spanish. And hardly anyone spoke English, so you could practice all the time. If I go to Barcelona now or anywhere in Spain, everybody speaks English. And even if I start speaking Spanish, they always answer in English, and it's so annoying. So I get rusty, and then I get frustrated because I can't. I mean, we do it in English, don't we, where you can't remember, you can't think of the word. But imagine doing it in a foreign language that you're not really spoken consistently for for over 30 years, it's um, frustrating. But it's still all right, not as good as it was. Estoy aprendiendo español. Ah, muy bien. My uh, parents uh, live in Mallorca, and I, I likened learning English there to a Spaniard learning English in Wales. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the accent, yeah. <laughs> the accent is, and Catalonia yeah. would have been... Yeah, that's got exactly an accent too. Mm. I can, yeah, definitely. You can relate to that. Um, now we've got uh, TJ in Portsmouth saying, uh, when you were playing, how did you motivate your team when they were losing? I would imagine it's the same as it is for, for when you're with the troops and it's not going well. You know, your big personalities have to step up and you have to try and rally everyone. And keep the belief is always the thing. You've got to keep believing. Particularly if you go a goal down in a game, you can't let that affect you. Goals do affect matches. You see, see them turn on a goal so quickly. So mm. I think really it's encouragement. I think most of us respond better to an arm around the shoulder than perhaps a kick up the backside. Some players respond better with some need a kick. But by and large, I think most of us, I think to get the best out of them, need, need um, to be given self-belief. Um, I think that's important. But I'm not, you know, I'm not necessarily a natural leader. Rebecca Warren, this is a lovely one. Uh, my name is Rebecca. I'm a nurse on a spinal injury ward at Midland Centre for Spinal Injuries and a nurse in the Army Reserve. Please could you say hi to all my patients at Midland Centre for Spinal Injuries as I told them I would be speaking to you. They're all amazing following life-changing injuries. It would mean so much if you could say hi and tell them they're all amazing and it would make me very, very proud. And then she's also got a question as well, which I'll get to after that. All right, well, of course, first, um, yeah, absolutely happy to do that. You know, I've actually visited hospitals um, where troops get, you know, with injuries and lost limbs and stuff like that. And um, always never ceases to amaze me how, how upbeat they are, how, you know, how incredibly um, so forgiving about everything and just get, you know, even, you know, they don't beat themselves up or they just get on with things. Um, so stoic. Yeah, absolutely. Now, best wishes to all of them. They're doing a great job looking after them, I'm sure. You know, Rebecca's asked the toughest questions, so you might want to hold that uh, praise. Uh, she's actually, <laughs> <laughs> she said, Gary, what's the biggest yes. mistake you've ever made and what did you learn from it? Oh, biggest mistake. That's a toughie. I made a lot of mistakes, particularly on social media, getting involved in things I shouldn't have done, but oh, don't worry about that. Biggest mistake I've made, would I'd probably, um, football-wise, would be, the penalty to equal Bobby John's record against Brazil. I was trying to be a smart ass. I thought I'd do it in style, do a little penenka, a little dink down the middle. But unfortunately, I'd practice, I always practiced my penalties in training. I practiced a penalty that I was going to take in a match. So I'd hit like 50 penenkas the day, two days before, 50 penenkas the day before. But I hit them at Besham Abbey where the training ground was really bare. And the pitch itself at Wembley was really lush. And I, I just did the same technique I'd done the drive. But this is my excuse. This is great. Excuses, um, and the, the pitch just decelerated a bit like if you play golf any of you you know when you just like decelerate on a chip because you're worried about hitting it too hard um, balls it up really and the other one it's not really a mistake but certainly probably the most embarrassing thing would obviously be Italian 90 where I had a bit of an accident on the pitch but um it's a, it's a lot of people have asked about that, and I've. I'm sure I don't mind. I, yeah, it was, I, it was, I've swerved. It, it was. Um, well, it was funny. I'd been ill the night before. I was just kind of up all night with a bad stomach. I don't know whether I'd eaten something or whatever it was, a bug or I, I don't know. But 
I didn't feel great. And I didn't tell Bobby Robson because I did not want to be left out the first game. I mean, it's a bit selfish, but I thought, I'll be all right. I'll just play because I never wanted to miss a game. And um, first half started, about 20 minutes in, I started cramping. I was like, oh, this is not good, not good. But anyway, I made it to halftime, went to the low at halftime, came out for the second half, thought, I'll be all right now. 10 minutes in, start cramping again. I was like, trying to hold it on the last thing. I'm in trouble here. I'm in trouble. The ball went down there, left-hand side, and I kind of ran over and made some pathetic attempt to tackle it. And as I slid down, I relaxed, and it just came like, woof. I've got, I'm sorry about it, it's a bit graphic. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is a World Cup. And I'm sitting here, and thankfully the shorts were dark blue. And, and as I'm lying on the ground, I can't, I'm standing, Gary Stevens, the right back, comes over, and he looks down at me, and he goes... Oh, sorry, you're all right, you're all right. And, and, and you can see it if you look at the footage. And, and just look at it and go, I've shit myself. <laughs> I'm shoveling out of my shorts. And then I'm doing the doggy thing, you know, that dog wipes the back side down. And then I got up and after that, it kind of relieved the tension. I'm running around, it was smelling bad and the mosquitoes everywhere. Oh, I, I, I must admit though, I did find a bit of space after that. I did got a bit, you oh, know, you no did. tight market. But then about 10 minutes to go, I'm cramping again. Bobby Robson takes me off. Now, every ground I've ever played at, Ball, I think maybe Burnley and um, where else? Crystal Palace. The dugout is right by the tunnel. So I'm thinking dugout, tunnel, straight down, getting the up. Not this ground, not Calgary, no. This is on the opposite side, so I had to go and sit on the bench with all the subs, and you can see them all shuffling away from me. I kept it, it was kind of a secret for 20 years. And about 10 years ago, I was, um, did an interview for Five Live, and at the end of the interview, it was a long one, he said, there's this rumour that you had an accident in Italia 90. Now, obviously, my friends knew, my teammates knew, but it never became public. And I just told the story and then, then it just went, it kind of went viral and it's like massive. And then anyway, sorry for sharing that story. Yeah. I mean, for those asking why we haven't broadcast this directly on radio, uh, <laughs> that's why. Plenty of you do that on the, you know, on the front line. I'm sure that's probably oh, happened a few times. Gary, you know, if we had, if we had time, I've got <laughs> stories. Uh, but oh, Tam, Tam might have his own because Tam's just got back from Iraq yeah. and oh. says, uh, what was the greatest game you ever played in? I'd have to go England, Poland, 86, because it changed my, changed my life, changed my career. I was kind of, I'd broken into the England side before the World Cup, obviously, and I was, I thought I'd be left out. And then I, I scored three goals in, in, in the first half. Don't know how to go on about it, but, um, and, and all of a sudden we're in the next round. I scored two again, then I get one, and, and I ended up winning a golden boot and off it, I moved to Barcelona. It was kind of, it was life-changing. Um, so, for me, that was the best game. But in terms of a great game, a spectacle, I don't know, maybe the court final in 90 against Cameroon, who were brilliant. It's a, it a great game. I got a couple of penalties. But I played in lots of high-scoring games. But when they're not that significant, like a World Cup match, it just doesn't live in the memory so much. Everyone's had a first game at some point, and it might have been for you a fairly middle-of-the-season game for Tottenham, for argument's sake, uh, maybe just a 1-0. Yeah. But for someone, that will be their most memorable game, and maybe you scored in it. And you're right, it's the yeah. big ones. I, I mean, I yeah. need camera. It, it is, I think it is, when you, if you've been lucky enough to play in a few big ones, yeah. Also, uh, John Aidware says, Hello, Gary. Have you ever thought about going into football management? And that's a really good question, because <laughs> I was wondering, it seemed to me mm. that you naturally went into punditry in the media, because you were doing that long before you'd actually finished playing 
Yeah, no, I'd never had any any ambition whatsoever to be a coach or a manager. It's not me. I just didn't think I'd a, be particularly good at it. I, I always fancied the media, and I always thought from the mid-20s onwards, I'd started to think about post-career and what I wanted to do. And I also thought if I could crack presenting, because I just looked at other sports, and you've got like Subaru, tennis, and David Gower in golf, and, you, you know, they'd been top players of their sport, whereas in football, there wasn't really anyone doing the presenting side of it. Lots of pundits, obviously, but not too many presenters. And Jimmy Hill played, presented occasionally, match of the day, but by and large, he was a pundit. Bob Wilson did it, but he's a goalkeeper, so that doesn't count. <laughs> um, um, but no one that had ever kind of played and played right at the top had ever done it. And I thought, if I could crack it, it would give me a niche and perhaps a little bit of longevity, Which and that's obviously how it's turned out to be. But for the first two or three years of presenting, driving home, having done football focus so many times thinking I'm never going to be able to do that because it's 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 trickier than it's trickier than people perhaps mm. think but it comes to a point where you get used to it used to the environment you, you relax you become yourself and then people decide whether they like you or not yeah I mean Dan Walker makes it look so easy but uh, yeah Dan's great yeah, <laughs> he's Dan's brilliant great. isn't he I mean you just mentioned that and and being on the telly for, for so many years now, and actually you and I share a star sign, that's probably why we're getting on so well, because your birthday is just after mine, uh, but you'll be a, a tad older. You'll be 60 yeah. on the 30th of oh, November. Right. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> 2020, I call it. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, well, birthdays don't count this year, I think, uh, but you're, you're going to be 60 oh, on the 30th, good. and, and you still yeah. look great, and, oh, and you've survived the, the sort of ageism that can exist on TV, mm. and in fact, you've signed a new contract for the next yeah. five years. So uh, apologies, apologies to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, how, how do you think you've managed to stand the test of time? Um, I think it's a, a little bit down to, to what I was saying just before about the fact that there are no other, um, particularly now, I'm the only one really that, that's, that's played at the top level. Mm. Um, so it gives me an edge. It gives me an edge on all the other football presenters that are out there because none of them have been there. And I get, obviously because of that, I get more feedback from, from the players that I interview. They never look at me. They can't go, well, what do you know? Um, so it, it, it gives me an advantage. Um, there's no question about that. And I think, and also I, I try and look after myself. I'll, I'll train hard, which I think helps. I think, you know, get the, keeps the brain sharp, hopefully. Bit of life left in the old dog, yeah. We've got another five years and, and who knows after that? I don't know. Ethan is a Spurs fan, son of Staff Sergeant Emma Perkins, based in Northern Ireland. Uh, saying, uh, what did you feel like when you actually won the World Cup Golden Boot? Which, for those that don't know, is the top scorer. Yeah. Um, thrilled. Thrilled. I know it's a personal honour and not a team honour, and football's about team things. But if you're a striker, you want to be the best in the business. And, and, and that was one way of judging it at that particular time. I, yeah, I'd, I'd talked about the hat-trick against Poland, then I got to... And then I'd, I'd scored six, and then Diego scored two in the semi-final. It meant he was one behind me. And he and the other players, who were, I think it was Butragueño and Correca, had also got five. And there might have been somewhere else. Might have been Elkiar. I think Elkiar had got um, five as well. And I was one ahead of them all. But there was only one player left that was in the final. And I actually, that was, I think that was my first ever punditry role, was the World Cup final. They got me in. I sat next to Jimmy Hill and Des Lyman and, um, and Terry Venables. The game was going on. I was watching the game, and all I cared, I didn't care about the result, and it cared about what happened. I just didn't want Maradona to score, certainly not to score two, take it away from me completely. So, and he didn't. Obviously, had a, he made the goal for Burachaga in the last minute, but and I just sat there, and it was like such a buzz. And and 
Jimmy Hill says, I just want you to be the first person to congratulate you on winning the Golden Boot. So I was memorable. You know, it's, 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 it's downstairs. It's, and it's my favourite possession. That was my next question, if you've still got it in pride of place. That's, yeah. that's good to yeah, know. Yeah, my gym with my other golden boots from team ones, you know, top <laughs> yeah. the division, a few of those. But, yeah. but that, the World Cup one is special. It looks the same as the other ones, but I know which one it is. That's all that matters. And yes, Gary's still working out. He's just dropped that in, the personal gym, <laughs> not to brag. Uh, Dev has said, out of all the young English players coming through at the moment, who would you love to play with? Probably Trent. Trent yeah. Alexander-Arnold, I just, I just love that kid. He's such a beautiful footballer and he's serviced for his strikers. It's his crossing, you see, the game's selfish reasons, but um, I'd score so many from Trent. So um, probably him, but, I, you know, Sancho and Foden are going to be fantastic little footballers as well. So, you know, let's, they're a couple of years younger than Trent. So we'll see how they develop, but I think they're both going to be um, superstars. Good evening, Gary. This is from... Uh... Ben, who says, um, if a Hollywood movie was made of England's journey in the 1990 World Cup, what actor would play you, Gazza, and Sir Bobby Robson? I don't know. It's an actor with big ears. Who's that guy that did that detective series? I don't know. I mean, what about... I mean, I'm not, I'm not, Well, I'm not trying to uh, blow Brad smoke, but... Pitt, probably. Well, Brad I was, I was genuinely going to say uh, George Clooney, because... George Clooney, yeah. He's got a similar hair. Well, you know? Yeah, Silver Fox. Uh, yeah, I don't... Take play it. Bobby Robson. I don't know. He'd have to be, you know, really. Ch- Bobby was a, like just such a lovely bloke. Um, still miss him. Yeah, such a great guy. So was he, so, Gary, yeah. your uh, favourite manager to play under? You know, including club side and international side. He was. He was up there. Um, I would say probably him and Terry Venables. Um, I spent obviously quite a bit of time with both because I had Barcelona and Tottenham with Terry. Was Howard Kendall's brilliant, but it was only one season. Um, but yeah, him and, and, and Bobby, um, I think, would have to be um, best two. Yeah. Now, this is interesting from uh, Liam Doyle, who says, uh, Gary, obviously in 1986, you were the, the Golden Boot winner, uh, the only Englishman to have done so until a certain Harry Kane in 2018 <laughs> in the World Cup there. So Liam's question is, how did you feel when Kane did not square the ball to Sterling against Croatia. Would you have given Kane some heated words if that was you in the middle? And on the flip side, would you have attempted to shoot yourself instead of passing? It's, it's so difficult to say unless you put yourself in that situation. You know, you've got to see the person. And always when people used to say, you know, he should have squared it, he should have squared it, he should have squared it. I always say, well, you've got your best finisher with the ball. If, if you go for goal, you either score or you miss. If you pass the ball in those situations, the pass can go wrong or the person that gets the ball can miss. So there's two things that can go wrong. Now, it's so easy after the event to say, oh, because he missed, he should have passed it. Maybe, you know, maybe at that stage, he's only thinking, he can only see the far corner of the net and he thinks he can score. Um, it's very easy to be critical in, in, in those circumstances. And if he'd have squared it and he'd have squared it just behind him instead of everyone would have gone, oh, you should have done it yourself because you're the best goal scorer. So it's, you know, it's easy after the event in hindsight. But, you know, Harry's great, you know, brilliant goal scorer. Mm. And, and all brilliant goal scorers will have a degree of selfishness because you have to have that. It's be a centre forward in many ways. So, um, yeah, I, I, I get the question, but I... I, I wouldn't be that hard on him personally. <laughs> uh, now, uh, we've got Rob in Tidworth who says, Hello, Gary. Do you think the game is improving with this modern technology that's been introduced? And uh, what would you change if you were to make the game any better? 
Well, I don't think that improves. It's, it's improving the game. It's, I think it's hindering the game. I think it, it should be improving the game, but I don't think it's being administered very sensibly because ultimately all you've got is another bloke that's refereeing the game from afar. So it's slowing things down. We're getting goals disallowed for, for virtually nothing that no one sees at the time. It was always introduced or should have been introduced to spot the absolute howler. And I'd kind of describe it as being better off if you've got your mate back home, the ref's mate back home watching it on the telly and he's got a phone and, and the game's going on and then he goes, oh my God, mate, you just made the biggest mistake mm. of your life. You need to change it. And that's how it was. I suppose the levels of where you judge what is a huge error is the problem that you get. And if you've got someone officiating the game from afar, give someone a little bit of power and they'll take so much more. And that's what's happening. And it's just gone to the nth degree now, fractions and and drawing dots up to see who's offside. It's just become, uh, frankly, absurd. But hopefully it will level itself out. Now. I mean, obviously we'll get more accurate decisions, which is, is, is fairer. But it's, yeah, I think it's just being overused. It's a shame. It's a shame. Gary, what's it like? Because I've not spoken to anyone who's been to a game at the moment. Stadia oh, yeah. empty. It's strange. What's it actually it's like? Weird. It's like training, but training that's important, which training never really is. So it's, it's, it's incredibly different. It's so weird. We did the cup final and we had, we were, I was obviously it was shown by both BBC and BT. I was doing the BBC's coverage. We had Ian Wright and Shearer and Ashley Cole. They had uh, Rio was doing it. But obviously Rio and Wrighty are both quite vociferous, quite loud and they're shouting and stuff. And at the end of the game, a few of the Arsenal players who were celebrating came, came up and they were shouting, right, we could hear everything you said, right? It was great. <laughs> and you mean, it's just weird. It's like, so just odd, but... I mean, these are strange times, aren't they? And I, we just got to get the crowds back somehow because it's it's not the same. I mean, we're doing the best that we can with it, and it's better than nothing at the moment. But mm. I, I just I think we're all missing the crowds, and it, it does make you realise how important fans are to football. Matt and Dave Elliott, if there's any fans that know what an empty stadium is like all the time, they're West Ham fans. Ooh, They've oh, said, uh, oh. Gary, which players tried to provoke you and spoil your clean record of no bookings, and and how did they do that? <laughs> Um, well, I don't think anyone was trying to get you booked. They're trying to get you hurt in my days because they'd kick you. You know, Arsenal, Tony Adams and Bold and Keown were, you know, they they would do that. But so would defenders of a lot of sides. I didn't mind that. I didn't mind them kicking me. I just thought it was part of my job. You, the thing is, with Big Tony and stuff, you could hear him coming. So you managed to get your feet off the ground, and you never really got hurt. I used to be in the tunnel before games. I mean, you try everything you can to, I suppose, amplify your chances of winning. And um, I used to say to the referees in the tunnel, I said, mate, Adams, Bob, I said, they'll kick me two or three times in the first five minutes. If you don't book them, then they'll do it all game. You've got to protect me. It didn't usually work, but sometimes it might help and then they couldn't do it. And likewise, when Arsenal, particularly Arsenal, but lots of teams that played the high line, really high line, which I love playing against, I mean, you know, I'd love to play now. Some of these high lines are crazy. Without, you know, without pressure on the ball, you can time your runs perfectly. You know, teams that played that way, I, I used to be deliberately offside two or three times in the first 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, and for, for two reasons. One, it made the defenders think they've got you here, oh, we've got him every time. And they might get a little bit, um, little bit relaxed about it. And the other thing is it puts a bit of pressure on the linesman. He's put his flag up three times. He's got the fans behind him going, oh, and then all of a sudden, now you've, you've got 
helping them load into a false sense of security and then you'd start time your runs properly and then if it's if, with the benefit of the doubt if he's put his flag up three times it might you know it's it's just the tiny percentage it's just little tricks that that you try to do i don't many players do that but i learned that off one or two players when i was young I like that a lot. We've got uh, John from Cyprus. In your footballing career, do you have any regrets? I suppose totally unrelated. How was Japan? <laughs> um, yeah, no, no regrets about Japan. That was a great experience and I was kind of corrupt by them anyway, really. People talk about the, the biggest thing in my career, though, is losing the penalty shootout to Germany because you that close I mean it's not a regret because it's you know it happened and I scored my penalty and it was one of those things but if you're asking me for a moment that I could change it would be that if we could have won that penalty shootout somehow and I think we'd have won the World Cup and that gives you football in immortality we'd have been I think good favourites in the final Craig from Edinburgh as the father of a football mad seven-year-old who's showing promise as a player what are the three most important tips tricks or tactics you learned in your youth that gave you that competitive edge against your peers and contributed mm. most to you becoming a professional footballer one is practice 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 all you can every minute of the day you know even if you're in the house fiddle around with the ball and get comfortable with it treat your best friend it's your best friend's better than a pet when you're young Secondly, I would say you've got to enjoy it. You've got to love it. If you don't love it, it's not going to happen for you. But at the same time, if you do love it, you'll find your level. You'll find your level and you'll still love it and you'll enjoy it. Thirdly, I would say be comfortable with both feet. You know, if you, most people have got a stronger foot than the other. Practice, I used to practice all the time because I was hopeless when I was a kid with my left foot. But my dad used to make me practice all the time. My left foot, left foot, left foot, left foot, left foot. And, um, you know, and in the end, it came in handy and World Cup semi-final. in the corners with the left foot, um, even though the, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. Diego Maradona didn't use his right foot ever, but he was a genius. So, But I think they're probably the, the biggest three things. Tricks and stuff that comes with experience and playing against players and, and not getting ruffled and just concentrating on, you, on your game and working hard. They're all obvious things, but, but those three things. I think probably the most important. I think it's something else later when it's too important. Well, it's a, it's a great question and we've had so many brilliant questions. I want to take um, a moment to, uh, to thank Tickets for Troops for help with organising this entire yeah. event. We've had so many questions come through. We are almost running out of time. We've got 10 more minutes. I won't get to all of them. I do apologise. I want to get to uh, Nicholas here who said, Gary, in all honesty, is there an English club when you were playing that you desperately wished had come in for you that unfortunately didn't? He also says, and thanks for those great words in relation to what we do in the armed forces. It is appreciated. Oh, good. I'm glad it's appreciated because we appreciate you. Um, English football, um, probably. Uh, it's funny, when I came back from Barcelona, I quite, fa- I shouldn't really say this, I haven't said it before, I, probably <laughs> I quite fancied going to Arsenal, but they, they wouldn't pay. Yeah, George Graham is a bit tight, George. So I went, I went to the safe with Terry Venables and I was thinking I'm going to play with Gazza and Chris Waddle. And then four weeks after I arrived, they <laughs> sold Chris Waddle. It was like I was on holiday on a beach and somebody got a message saying Chris Waddle's been sold to Marseille. It was like snatched 15 goals a season out of my pocket. It was a terrible moment. Wow. So all those Tottenham fans have been getting in touch. Uh, that was your favourite Tottenham player. No, I love playing for Tottenham. I love playing for Tottenham. It was great. But I'm just telling you facts. That was no, I love it. I think that's superb. And I admire the honesty. And it would have been a good time <laughs> to play for Arsenal. Because George Graham, they were famous for 1-0 to the Arsenal. You could have changed that to 2-0 to the Arsenal. <laughs> yeah, or 1-1. Or 1-1. One, one. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Andy says, uh, who was your favourite match of the day pundit to work with? On the match of the day ones, we, who have we got? I mean, I love working with Shearer and Wrighty. I think that's kind of the 
first team. Shearer's, I think, become really good. Uh, very opinionated, strong. Obviously knows the game inside out. One of the greatest players uh, in English history. And I think in the first few years of it, he, he, he struggled to find his way because I think he always thought he was going to go back into management. Kind of held back a little bit because of that. But I think once he decided that that wasn't going to happen, he came into himself. And I think by his own mission, he became a much more serious pundit and, and that was his job. Right, I love working with. Right, he's so much fun, as you can imagine, exactly how he, you know, he's up and down. And he's, we have such a laugh. There's great pundits everywhere now, but I think the person that paved the way for the modern pundit is Alan Hansen. Mm. You know, he was the first one that really went into the tactical nuances of the game. And before that, it was always just opinions and, and people basically saying what you could see for yourself. Whereas I think Hansen changed that so much to the extent I used to sit next to him sometimes and he'd start his analysis of not forwards, on defenders. And he'd go, he's doing that because... Of, and I used to think, oh yeah, I didn't realise that. That you don't see for yourself at home. And you're dealing with a very educated football audience in this country in most countries now, because everyone loves football. Yeah, they do. Uh, well, they should, they should do. Presenting match of the day in your pants after Leicester won the league. How did that idea come about and how did it go down with the director general of the BBC? Uh, the pants didn't go down, thankfully. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, they were, they were really up for it. They thought it was, it was, I mean, obviously it was just another one of my stupid tweets that I did, I think in November, when Leicester were going quite well and I, I just wrote the tweet saying, oh, if Leicester win the league, I'll do the first match of the day next season in just my unders. I knew categorically 100% at that point that there was no chance, zero chance that Leicester would win the league. But then obviously the miracle happened and it was, it was beautiful. And it made me it actually made me cry with joy sharing that experience with my boys, three of which support Leicester. So, but the actual doing of it was massively supported by the BB. They thought it was, it was a bit of fun. It became obviously good PR. Not that that was ever the intention. Uh, but I must say, doing it was the oddest experience. It was just surreal. I just, it was just weird. Did you go on a diet before? I didn't go on a diet before, but I, and I never ate anything on the day. Right, <laughs> so, knew it. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm not, you know, you're going to stand there and up next to nothing. You've got to <laughs> try, but yeah. I could just picture you before filming just doing loads of crunches and thinking I'm not going to eat anything. No, do you know what? That was my plan because I trained all the time anyway. Guy who trains me sometimes. He, he he said the thing to he said just before you just before you do it. He said like do do 60, 70 press ups, do some crunches. Do it. He said you'll just do a few. He said get yourself a little band and do a few like curls. And I thought that was my plan. And then when I got there, I had to rehearse. And I thought I can't do that in the studio. I can't sit stand on the floor now and do a load of press ups. I thought sod that. So I didn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was weird. You know, you, you love seeing teams like, like Leicester win the Premier League, shaking it up and was, just giving everyone brilliant. who supports a smaller club that, that hope. It was the best sporting moment of my lifetime and I had nothing to do with it. Zero. But it was just magical what happened. For any club of the stature of the size of Leicester to do that, we all thought it was impossible. But mm. for it to be the club that obviously I've supported since I was a little kid, and it was just, it was too much for me actually. Watching it every Sunday, because then played all the Sundays. Last, mm. So I worked Saturday night, come on, watch it with the boys. And we was like one nil, one nil, one nil, two. And we kept winning. It was like, and the closer it got, the more agonising it was because you thought, if they don't do it, if they don't win it now, what are we going to do? 
And then when it happened, when Hazard bent that in, that 2-2 goal, Chelsea against, sadly against Tottenham, but mm. that was the only downside. And then we were just huddled and it was, oh, just probably, it was horrible. It was yeah. a bit emotional, really emotional. It was beautiful. Oh, it's great hearing it. Yeah, when Tottenham finished third in a two-horse race, we all remember that. <laughs> oh, no, uh, no. Bryce, just before we go, just wants to say something really nice. Just to say, Gary, you're an absolute legend. Being a father to a newborn, I struggle to watch footy as much as I used to. Plus, I'm <laughs> I'm so whipped. But uh, <laughs> but match of the day is my me time, and it's what I look forward to more now on weekends. That comment from you, it's not a handball unless his arms leave his body. Absolutely. <laughs> Made me chuckle. Uh, Righty's moment, yeah. It was a lot. It's a lot. I'm, no, it's great. I'm, I mean, it's amazing, really, that Highlights Program still does so well. Um, the numbers are brilliant, and you people love it. And for a lot of people, that's that, that's their Premier League fix. Long they may that continue, because it's it's a great program to be part of. Also, Gage has said, "Hey, Gary, who was the most inspirational leader that you ever played with?" I'd probably go Brian Robson. He was, you know, as a real leader, natural-born leader, and he led um, with the way he played as well. He was up and down, box to box, one of the greatest midfield box to box players. Funny enough, he's, there's a documentary. I just did an interview for it um, a couple of days ago. I don't know when it's going out, but um, about Brian. And I said in that, I always thought that if he got injured in '86 and '90, both couldn't play in both World Cups. You know, after the first game or two. I think if he'd have stayed fit for either of them, I think we'd have won one of them. I'll never know, of course, it's, you know, it's hypothetical, but I honestly believe that. Well, finally, Lee, I just, in the question, I just want to say this, Lee and Matthew Betts at RAF Cosford say they are massive Leicester fans. They, like hopefully everyone who's been part of this, thanks to Tickets for Troops and BFBS, have really enjoyed this, uh, this Q&A, this opportunity with you. Gary Lineker, thank you so much for giving up the time. No, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, guys, just keep up the good work. It's amazing what you do. And it, it really is. And, you know, we've, I think we've seen in these difficult times with the appreciation of people that do important stuff. But um, your stuff is, is, is so important and so appreciated. So keep up the great work. Brilliant. Gary Lineker, thank you. My pleasure. Cheers. Coming up next time, former Navy man, footballer, manager and current TV presenter plus pundit, Chris Kamara. Jeff comes to me, let's go down to Chris tomorrow. Frat and Pat Weathers been a sending off. Sending off? I must have missed that, Jeff. <laughs> Cammy, Cammy, according to our sources, Anthony Van der Boer has been sent off for a second bookable offence. Get your fingers out and count the number of players on the pitch. Once upon a time, on the pitch. On the pitch.